Father, our prayer is that we would have really a clear understanding of the truth on the St. Eli Sunday, that we would know the truth. So give us clear minds, Lord, and anoint me to speak clearly and simply the truth. I also want your heart in this matter. Lord, we pray that we would, we would really have the compassion you have in this whole area and that you would just lead us as a church, individually and corporately, to really effectively be able to minister consistently with the truth that we believe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, you've already heard a few times that this Sunday is Sanctity of Life Sunday. And there are thousands and thousands of churches around the country that are going to talk today. Every time... Uh, of the year, you know, January, around January 20th or so, because it's close to the time when Roe v. Wade uh, came into being. And so churches are trying to, it's the only place that I know of that's going to tell the truth in regard to the issue of the sanctity of life. What we're saying is that human life is sacred because human life, humans are created in the image of God. So all stages of human life are sacred to God and should be sacred to us. Let me ask you this. Do you know what you believe about pro-life or pro-choice? Do you know what you believe? Are you certain? And do you know why you believe what you believe? Because what you find out, if you talk to very many people, you'll find out that not very many people have really thought this through very well. In fact, I want you to just go with me in this video now to the on-the-street person and what they really think about this. You see how muddled their thought processes are in this whole regard. Let's watch this brief video. Characterize yourself as pro life, pro choice, both or neither? <laughs> uh, both. Can you explain that? I wouldn't, but I can't choose for other people. That's kind of what we are as America, is letting you know people have their freedom. So I'm, what do you call it, uh, pro-life. It's, it's, it's a life you're taking. Like, it's, it's, it's really considered murder. Because the, the baby has a fetal heartbeat, the baby's alive. So I think when the baby gets a heartbeat, that should be the cutoff point. That's just my stance. I'm not the kind of guy, like, I, I want everyone to follow my stance. All these laws that are, like, making it more difficult for women to get abortion, I, I think that's crazy. They should have all legal rights to have an abortion. It's our own rights. Freedom. That's a human being's body, so I think they have the right to them, have control over their body. I think in situations where the woman had, where it can be proved that the woman had control of the situation, they should not be allowed to abort the baby because they were part of that conscious decision. I would consider myself pro-life. I think that by making it illegal, it, it, it makes it more dangerous for women in the world. I, I identify as pro-choice. I was brought up Catholic, 
let people do what they want to do, you would be able to understand it. I mean, I would say pro-choice. If I had to pick, I would say that I'm pro-choice, but personally, I'm more on a, on a, somewhere in the middle. I don't want to discuss something like that. I don't want to go there. Probably pro-life. This, this life that you're taking out of the world to probably be something better or famous or bigger than you could ever even imagine, this is probably the next president. But if you don't allow them to get an abortion, best believe they're going to find a way to abort it themselves. Like, I've seen it. It should be illegal, but it's a 50-50 on that. It really is. Like, there's some good points. There's pros and cons. Well, that was clear, wasn't it? You know, really, this is a subject that every Christian ought to have a good answer for, ought to have some clear thinking about it. So I want to do this morning, I want to back up a little bit, and let's talk a little bit about this. Now, the way that we see the world, the way that everyone sees the world is called a worldview. It's, it's like putting on a pair of glasses. Everybody sees the world through certain lenses called a worldview. Now, it's important that a person has the correct worldview if they're going to interpret events correctly. So I want to talk a little bit about worldviews because as a Christian, we should have a Christian Worldview, or we should our worldview should be Christian theism. But there is another comp competing worldview out there. It's really secular humanism, or we could call it the postmodern secular humanism. And there are two competing worldviews. Now, what I mean by postmodern secular humanism is it starts off by being it's it's basically atheistic at its core. And by the way, let me just point out what you have to believe in order to believe this worldview to be true. And you have to believe that something came from nothing, that being came from non-being. Again, this is this core atheistic worldview. Being came from non-being. Time, matter, and chance gave rise to mind. The personal came from the impersonal. The conscious, and most of you are probably conscious this morning, <laughs> the conscious came from the unconscious. A sense of right and wrong and that sense of ought, I ought to do something, came from inanimate matter. I mean, the list goes on and on of the illogical nature that is really foundational to this worldview of postmodern secular humanism. And yet, it is the view that is more and more dominating our politics, our universities, and our media. And by the way, it's slipping into lots and lots of churches. Now, we believe that Christian theism 
is the correct and true worldview for many reasons. But I want to, for the sake of simplicity this morning, is tell you the main reason why we should, we should have the worldview of Christian theism. I'm going to walk you through a simple process. I want you to follow me in this process, this thought process. Here it goes. It starts with Jesus rose from the dead. Now, his resurrection was witnessed by hundreds of people, hundreds, 500 at one time, witnessed the resurrected, living, breathing, resurrected Christ. And of those hundreds, many of them lost their lives through being persecuted because they would not stop preaching about what they saw. Now, this is important that we understand what we're talking about here. Many of the martyrs and many of the persecuted first century Christians were being persecuted and martyred not for preaching about something they believed to be true. But they were being persecuted and martyred for preaching about something they saw. See, it's possible for somebody to believe something to be true and to be wrong about it. That's what many radical Muslims are doing today. <clears throat> but the first century Christians, they did not, primarily were not dying and be persecuted in that first, in the book of Acts, for what they believed to be true, but they were being persecuted and even martyred <clears throat> because they would not stop preaching about what they saw. They were witnesses to the resurrected Christ. In fact, let's look at Acts chapter 4, verse 18 through 20. <clears throat> This is the first persecution of the church, Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders, it says, when they had summoned them, talking about Peter and John, when they summoned them, they commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, what they were preaching was the resurrection, but we'll see this in a moment. Verse 19, but Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God. You be the judge. <clears throat> for verse 20, for we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. So Christ rose from the dead, and his resurrection proves what? It proves that he is who he said he is. Who did he say he is? He said before Abraham, this is John chapter 8, Verse 58, he said, before Abraham was, I am. When he says, I am, he uses the name of Yahweh God of himself. Some people say Jesus never made the claim. Yes, he made the claim. He made the claim that he was Yahweh God come in the flesh. He made the claim, and the Jews understood he made that claim, because the very next verse says they picked up stones to throw at him. Why? Because they believe he just committed the sin of blasphemy. Claiming to be God. He did claim to be God, but it wasn't a sin for him to do it because he is God. All right, so Jesus rose from the dead. That proves that he is who he says he is. Who does he say he is? God come in the flesh. <clears throat> that means that if he's God come in the flesh, everything he says must be true. Because God cannot lie. So what does he say about the Old Testament? Here's what he says. Matthew 5, 17 and 18. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke 
shall pass away from the law, talking about the Old Testament, not the smallest letter or stroke of the pen shall pass away from the law, not the dotting of an I, the crossing of a T, that would be the metaphor for us in English. Not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus is saying of the Old Testament <clears throat> that it is the unstoppable, unbreakable, authoritative word of God. Everything it says must come to pass. Everything it says is true. He's making this statement very clearly. And I hear people say a lot of times about different debates, you know, in our culture, things like homosexuality, for example. Well, Jesus never really spoke about that. Well, Jesus affirmed the entire Old Testament as being true. Now, not only does he affirm the entire Old Testament is true, but he promises the writing of the New Testament after he ascends into heaven, pours out the Holy Spirit on the church. The Holy Spirit will lead the apostles to write the New Testament. Now, where does he say this? Where does Jesus promise this? Here's where he promises it. John 14, verse 26, he says this to his disciples, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. People say, how could they remember everything Jesus said? Because the Holy Spirit did it. Supernaturally, he gave them remembrance of everything Jesus said that Jesus wanted them to write down. John 16, verse 12 through 14. He's talking to the same group of disciples. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he'll speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine, Jesus says, and shall disclose it to you, apostles. So Jesus is promising the writing of the New Testament that it will be true. It'll be the word of God. It'll be by the spirit of truth. So Jesus, the only one who's ever risen from the dead, proving he is who he says he is, God come in the flesh, and God cannot lie. What does Jesus say about the Bible? Jesus says the Old Testament, down to the smallest dotting of the I, crossing of the T, is the authoritative word of God. It is true. It must come to pass. And then he promises the writing of the New Testament. The Holy Spirit will bring everything to the remembrance of the apostles, will guide them in all truth, and even disclose more revelation to them as they write. So, our worldview and the way that we see reality, the glasses, so to speak, that we look through to interpret reality is our Christian worldview. We believe that the Bible teaches the truth about reality, about God, about mankind. Now, why do we believe the Bible teaches the truth? The answer is because Jesus says so. That's why. You're saying you're putting everything on Jesus. Yes. You're putting everything on the resurrection. Yes. Because if there's no resurrection, there's no Christianity. And so we're putting all of our eggs in the Jesus basket. We're putting all our eggs in the resurrection basket. That's where they belong. But we believe the Bible is true because Jesus says so. The only one who's ever risen from the dead, proven he is who he says he is, God come in the flesh and God cannot lie. He says it is true. It is the word of God. That's why we believe it. 
That's why we believe there's lots of other reasons people could argue for why they believe the Bible is true and all that, but there's one reason worth dying for, and that's because Jesus says so. So there's two competing worldviews. Back to this now. There's Christian theism, which is the glasses that every Christian should be looking through, but fortunately they aren't. They should be. And then there's the worldview of secular humanism. Now, every person, every human being who's ever lived has asked four questions, or they should have if they haven't. Four basic questions. Here are the four questions. I'll put them up on the screen. Four questions every human being should be asking is this. Who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world because something's obviously wrong with it? And how can what is wrong be made right? Those are four questions every human being should be asking. Well, who am I? Why am I here? What is wrong with the world because something's obviously wrong? And how can what is wrong be made right? Now, I want to answer these four questions from each worldview, and I want you to see, see what's happening right now and why these worldviews are impacting our politics, our education system, and our media dramatically. We're going to answer these four questions. First, I want to answer these four questions from the worldview of secular humanism. And then I want to answer these four questions from the worldview of Christian theism. Okay? So first of all, let's answer these questions from the perspective of secular humanism, or particularly this postmodern view of secular humanism that our culture has, is embracing in, in a big way. First question, who am I? Remember, I'm answering this from the perspective of secular humanism. First question, who am I? Answer, you are nothing. You're an accident. You're a result of random evolutionary processes. You are the result of time, chance, and matter. You are not a person. You are simply a combination of chemical reactions. That's who you are. All right, second question. From the perspective of secular humanism, why am I here? You are here to consume and enjoy. You are here to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That is why you're here. The only thing that matters for you is your comfort and your pleasure, and that's all that matters. That's why you're here. Vadi Bachman points out in a very good message on this subject, says, when you put these two things together, you get terrible results. If I'm only the result of random evolutionary processes, and I only exist to consume and enjoy, then the only thing that matters is if I'm more powerful than you are. And if you have something I need for my enjoyment, then I will just take it. Now, haven't we seen that lived out in the world? I mean, all the way from whether someone's being mugged you know, personally, individually, or to, to nations going to war. Basically, is you have something that I need for my pleasure and my consumption, and I'm going to take it from you because I'm more powerful than you. But that mentality has also greatly impacted abortion in our culture. I mean, think about this. It follows, it certainly follows, if you believe that all that is in the womb is a lump of flesh, and that lump of flesh could hinder your consumption and enjoyment, then why not do away with it? I mean, can you see how really abortion is simply a result of a, this worldview, this postmodern, secular, humanistic worldview? It's taken such hold of not just our culture, but cultures around the world. 
and I'm not going into you know whole biblical message on abortion right now, but there's a button on our website. When you go to the sermon page in gracearlington.com, we've made an easy button. You can push and hear, hear a message just on the biblical view of abortion. But abortion, I want you to understand, is simply a result of this worldview of secular humanism taking hold. That's what it is. Now, what if the child is severely deformed? You know, that would cause even more of a hindrance, you know, to a parent's ability to consume and enjoy, right? So they should definitely abort that baby. And why stop there? I mean, what about aging parents? I mean, they're old and they're feeble, their end is near. In this perspective of looking through the glasses of secular humanism, I'll tell you where it's going. It's going to the point where the younger generation is going to say, not only do you have a right to die, you have a duty to die because we cannot bear the expense of keeping you alive anymore. I tell you, add that, add that, whole, that whole worldview to the rising price of health care and the burden that's going to put on this younger generation, this younger generation that's been taught secular humanism from the get-go, and all of a sudden they begin to take control of things in this country, just think where that's going to go with aging parents who need the expensive medical procedures and care to keep them alive. Think where that's going to head. Again, let's just review for a moment. Again, we're looking through the glasses of postmodern secular humanism, this worldview that is really being embraced not just in our culture, but in many cultures around the world. Here's a review. Who am I? You're nothing. You're an accident. You're a result of random evolutionary processes. Why am I here? You're here to consume and enjoy. Third question, what's wrong with the world? The answer for the secular humanistic perspective, what's wrong with the world? People are either insufficiently educated or insufficiently governed. That's what's wrong. People either don't know enough or they're not watched enough or controlled enough. That's what's wrong with the world. By the way, you want to see where this goes. You know, if, you just, if it keeps going to its logical conclusion, see what China's doing right now. Many of you aren't aware that uh, China's in the process of kicking out you know, all missionaries. And they're in the process of re-educating anyone who's, got, who's had any religious background. They're putting them in, into camps and schools re-educating them. They're in the process of putting cameras up all over that have facial recognition. Why? So they can control people. This, this is where atheistic secular humanism and communism leads to. And that's what's in the process of happening. It's more education and more control, more government. That's, what it's, that's, that's the solution, because that's what they think is wrong. There's not enough education, not enough control, so we need more. That leads us to the fourth question. How can what's wrong be made right? Postmodern secular humanism, how can what's wrong be made right? Very simple. More education and more government. That's the only answer our culture can come up with. More education and more government. I tell you, you wait till this 2020 election campaign heats up. You're going to hear more and more about the solution to our problems in our country is going to be more education and more government, more control. That's why it's, it blows many, many of our minds why communism and socialism has become popular again with this younger generation. Even though it's never worked anywhere in history, 
it, is, it, it becomes the only option of looking through secular humanism glasses is more education and more control. That's why these younger politicians are talking that way because that's what they were taught. That is the glasses they see through and that is why they want to take this country. So the problem is, I mean, the problem with that is if you take sinful, murderous individuals and educate them, then they just become more sophisticated in their ability to destroy. So you said, well, then we need to uh, govern them more. Well, who's going to govern the governors? See, the answer, the answer to those questions leaves, leaves those who adhere to this philosophy really empty, wanting, lacking. You see where it goes logically, and that's where it's, it's headed in a big way. Now, let's see how Christian theism responds to these same questions. Now we're going to look through the glasses of Christian theism. Our worldview is going to be Christian theism. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and we believe what he says about the Bible, that it's true, is true. So now let's answer these four questions. Number one, who am I? Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Psalm 8, verse 4. What is man that you take thought of him? The son of man that you care for him. Yet, you have made him a little lower than God. You crown him with glory and majesty. So who am I? Well, secular humanism says I'm the result of random processes. But Christian theism says I've been made in the image of God and crowned with glory and majesty. He knit me in my mother's womb and I am no accident. So that means this. That means whether I'm tall and beautiful or small and not so handsome, whether my body performs perfectly or is deformed severely, I am precious to God and crowned with glory and majesty. And as a result, I have inherit, inherit dignity and inherit worth and inherit value. Christian theism, therefore, has no place for things like racism, classism, abortion, or euthanasia. And by the way, when you consider things like slavery, slavery should have never happened if the leaders were really consistently looking through the glasses of Christian theism. But it did happen. But it's changed. It stopped. Why did it stop? You know why it stopped? It stopped because those in charge started looking through the glasses of Christian theism. That's why it stopped. See, if we begin to see the correct answer to the value of life in every human life, then it begins to dramatically impact decisions I make in my life. That's why our church, why do we support things like the Metroplex Women's Clinic? And why do we support Embrace Grace? And why are we supporting this, this new ministry, Foster and Adopt? Why? Because we are totally pro-life. Because God is pro-life. We value human life because it's sacred, made in the image of God. In all of its stages, and all of its conditions, we value it. In fact, I want to give you on and invite Nate Kemp to come on up here. I want you to hear a little bit more about this, our newest pro-life ministry, Foster Adopt. You heard his wife, Jenna, speak it during communion devotional.
But I want Nate to share a little bit about what they've been doing as a family, and just share a little bit from his heart. So, Nate, go ahead and share. All right, so when I'm reading through the Bible, and uh, specifically the Gospels, and I hear about the disciples and how they got to actually walk and talk with Jesus and have him invited into their homes and eat with him, and, and just to see how seeing him in his resurrected body just radically changed their faith. I just wish I could be part of that. And I wish I, I would do, I feel like I would do whatever it took to make that happen. If God came to me and said, hey, I'm sending Jesus into your home. I need you to clear out a room. I would do it. And if he said, you know, I need to make sure your house is safe and it's up to my standards, whatever he asked, I would do it. I'm going to come back to that, but, you know, as we've been talking about with Sanctity of Life Sunday, one of our core convictions is that every life is sacred to God and is special, and that as Christians, we have a particular calling to serve the most vulnerable members of our society. For unborn babies and their mothers, uh, we serve them through Embrace Grace and the Metroplex Women's Clinic. But there's another opportunity in our community to help children who don't have a safe home and don't have a family. Often we think of this as a problem, uh, you know, with orphans that just happens overseas. But right now in America, there are 100,000 children who are in foster care and are adoption eligible waiting for someone to call them into their home. But not all of them get called. And every year, 23,000 children age out of the foster care system. And of those that age out, 20% become immediately homeless. 50, only 50% are even employed by the time they're age 24. Less than 3% of those that age out ever finish college, even though they have access to free tuition. And 70% of the girls are pregnant by the time they're 21 years old. Talking to other families in this church that have dealt with this, that have been part of the solution of foster care and adoption, I've heard a lot of stories, and I know it can be very challenging. Uh, in my family, in addition to our two adopted daughters last year, we took in two more little girls, uh, a baby and a, her one-year-old sister. And so for a couple of months there last year, we had four kids under the age of four. And that was difficult. And a lot of people, you know, especially outside of the church and at work and stuff, kind of thought we were crazy. And then when we had to say goodbye to those two little girls, the two younger ones, as they returned back to their home, even though we knew it was probably for the best, that was difficult too, because you get attached, and that's part of the job. But because we were following Christ, he gave us peace, and he gave us joy in that process. Right now, I want you to think back to where you were in 1997, specifically financially. What was your financial situation in 1997? If I had come to you and said, hey, I'm from the future, and I have good news and bad news. The bad news is the Cowboys will not be back in the Super Bowl for at least 22 years. <laughs> but there's good news. I have a stock tip for you. And if you can manage to get together just $1,000 
whatever it takes, I promise that within two decades, you will be a millionaire. See, there's this little internet bookstore called Amazon.com. And if you invest in them, just $1,000, you'll be a millionaire. I bet you would do whatever it took. I bet you would work extra hours, get another job, maybe sell blood. I mean, people might think you're crazy, but you would do what it takes because you believed that investment had a return. Going back to what I was saying earlier about inviting Jesus into our home, God told us the future, and he gave us a tip. Jesus said, whoever receives a child in my name receives me. The tip is that he loves children, and he's coming back to distribute rewards in his kingdom. And rather than be reluctant and scared and fearful of what this might entail, I think if we really believe Jesus about this, that we wouldn't be we wouldn't be scared. We'd be like kids at an Easter egg hunt that were just running to find one of these 100,000 and fighting and pushing and trying to get as many as we could because we believed that we were making an investment and we believed how valuable these kids were to God. Thank you, Nate. You know, being completely pro-life really starts with having a correct worldview. That's really what I'm trying to get you guys to see. And being able to answer these questions. Again, what are the questions? Who am I? I am precious, the precious creation of God, made in the image of God, crowned with glory and majesty. And so is every person in this room, every person watching a live stream, every person in the world. No matter what stage of life, no matter if they're severely handicapped, no matter how old they are, they're precious, they're valued, they're sacred. Life should be protected because it's sacred. Second question, why am I here? Now, the postmodern secular humanism says that we're here to make the most of it, consume and enjoy. But Christian theism says this, <clears throat> Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him, Christ, by, all, by him all things were created, both in, hev in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So I am here. Why am I here? I'm here to glorify Christ. You never have to wonder why you're here. You're here not to consume and enjoy. You're here primarily to glorify Christ. That's why you exist. That's why I exist. You know, before planning Grace Community Church 31 years ago, I was a college pastor for seven years with college students, and I'd oftentimes ask them uh, what, the, what their major was. What, what's your major? And ask them why you chose that major. Why that major? And many times... Even the Christian college students would say, well, because I can make a lot of money. And a big part of that was not so I can make a lot of money and support the kingdom of God causes around the world. No, it's so I can make a lot of money so I can consume and enjoy as much as possible. And, and not never stop to think, wait a second, I'm here to glorify Christ. I should be thinking about the jobs I choose and where I move and what I do because that's the number one reason why I'm here. So why am I here? I'm here to glorify Christ. Question number three, what's wrong with the world? Colossians 1, 19 through 21. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, in Christ, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. So what's wrong with the world? In a word, people. People 
who are hostile in mind and engaged in evil deeds, according to this passage. So people who are created in the image of God, think about this, crowned with glory and majesty, created to give glory to Jesus Christ, those people are hostile toward him, the one from whom they were made and for whom they were made. That's what's wrong with the world. So the problem really, what's wrong with the world, is the spiritual condition of people. That's what's wrong with the world. And Vadi Bachman goes on to say this. He says, the problem is that they do not acknowledge the supremacy of truth, and, uh, supremacy of Christ in truth. The problem is that they start with themselves as a measure of all things. The problem is they judge God based on how well he carries out their agenda in the world. And they believe in the supremacy of themselves in truth. So as a result, they want God to be all-powerful but not sovereign. They don't want God to rule. They, they want to be able to wield his power to rule themselves. But here's the thing. If, if, if we have a God that is both omnipotent and sovereign, then that means we're at his mercy. All right, let's review again. Who am I? I am the precious creation of God, made in his image, crowned with glory and majesty. Why am I here? I'm here to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. What's wrong with the world? Those who are made by him and for him are hostile against him. That's what's wrong. All right, question four. How can what is wrong be made right? Colossians 1.22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present to you present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach, if indeed you continue in the faith, firmly established and steadfast, and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. So how can what is wrong be made right? One way and one way only. By the substitutional, atoning death of Christ. That's it. There's no other way. There's no other means. Acts 4, verse 12. And there's salvation in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. So Christ offers redemption. Christ offers forgiveness. Christ offers a real change of heart that will cause the world to become different if the hearts are made different. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. O oh, precious is the flow that makes me white as snow. No other fount I know. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So how can what is wrong be made right? By the spotless, sinless Lamb of God who is crushed for our iniquities and our sins. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now listen real carefully. This is real important. If you get this next thing I'm about to say or you're missing the, the, my thrust here. How can what is wrong be made right? One heart at a time. One heart at a time. It's the hearts of men and women and boys and girls that must be changed and made right if the world is going to be made right. Now let's compare these two worldviews in their outcomes, how they work themselves out now in real life. Postmodern secular humanism, how does it leave you? I'll tell you how it leaves you. It leaves you empty and hopeless. It leaves you worthless. It leaves you to pursue your own satisfaction and you will never find it. 
But in Christian theism, you are precious, you have purpose, you are powerless, but that's okay because you've been purchased. So as we walk through the highways and byways of life, we go through our schools and workplaces and neighborhoods, and we look into the lifeless eyes of individuals who have bought into the lie of this worldview of Christian, I mean, of uh, secular humanism. And rest assured this, rest assured that you possess the answer and you're possessed by the answer. The answer is Christ. The answer is Christ and his supremacy in truth. The answer is written down for us in our Bibles, the Word of God. The answer is there. So rest assured as you walk you know, through life and we see people that are just kind of aimless and they're not satisfied with the answers the culture has given them, that we have the answer. We have the only answer. By the way, the further people run away from the supremacy of Christ, the further that they run away from the only thing that's going to satisfy them, the only thing that's going to suffice, and the only thing that's going to answer the problems that the world has. So what do we do as Christians? We preach Christ and Him crucified. Because that is the answer. We preach the gospel. For the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. So I want to urge you on this Sanctity of Life Sunday, I want to urge you to embrace the gospel, to proclaim the gospel, the truth of the gospel, proclaim it passionately, proclaim it confidently, relentlessly, because that is why we are here. And once hearts are changed, here's what will happen. When hearts get changed, hearts will want to embrace what God embraces. And what does God embrace? God embraces life. And that is why we are pro-life. Amen? Let's stand for prayer. Those of you that have any questions uh, for any of our staff, we'll have Connection Coffee in this corner. We'll be glad to answer your questions. If this is your first Sunday, I'd love to meet you right here in this welcome corner. But also, if you have any prayer needs, we'll have some leader couples up here. We'd be glad to pray for you. Let's pray. Father, we know that we talk about this subject. It's... It's taboo in our culture to talk about, but it's also a lot of times in churches, Lord. People walk in and are bristled to talk about something that we need to talk about because where else will the truth be heard if it's not heard in the church? So Lord, I pray that you would enable all of us to receive the truth from your word. Lord, I pray that we'd be able to really embrace the gospel as the solution to changing hearts and changed hearts will change this world. So, Lord, we, too, we also pray, Lord, as we pray for these ministries, that you would really bless these ministries in a powerful way, make them effective and productive. Lord, the Metroplex Women's Clinic and Embrace Grace and Foster and Adopt. But also, Lord, give us more and more creative ways that we can really live out a pro-life stance in our actions. And, Lord, we pray for our country. We do pray, Lord, you to raise up men and women who will lead, who have changed hearts, who are not afraid of, Lord, the opinion of people, but are more run, led by the fear of God. And so, Lord, we just pray now that you would cause each one of us to just use our influence to speak the truth in our circle of relationships, to inform, Lord, a, a, a culture that's so uninformed and ill-informed also, I pray you'd raise up those in the universities and the media that would speak the truth.
that have changed hearts to speak the truth. Also, I pray you'd fortify pastors all over this country who are scared to stand up in their own pulpits and tell the truth. Lord, I pray you'd raise up those who, who are, fear you more than they fear people. Lord, I pray that Grace Community Church, Lord, will be a shining light in this region. And Lord, we just, I thank you so much that you have caused, you've done so much of that in the past. We just pray for more in the future. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 God bless you. You're dismissed. Have a great week.